0: Welcome to episode 566 with my guest, Andrea Ashley. I'm Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, a place for honesty about all the battles in our heads from medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas, and sexual dysfunction to everyday compulsive negative thinking. This show is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. I am not a therapist. It's not a doctor's office. It's more like a waiting room. It doesn't suck. The website for this show and the social media handles is MetalPod. So that would be metalpod.com and at MetalPod. Let's dive into some surveys. This is an awful moment filled out by Kilgore. And uh, he shares a, a moment or two from his life. He writes I've been institutionalized a handful of times. There's always funny stories from that, but it's also like a prison and sad. Maybe we should call it that. Maybe we should call it, instead of the psych ward, we should call it sad prison. Uh, he writes, we did karaoke and I sang wrecking ball with all my effort in front of some people that were barely functional. Wow, that is an image. Holy shit. Thank you for sharing that. This is um, a variety of people responding to the question uh from the back in time survey um if you could have any superpower what would it be and what would you do with it and one person writes i'd love to have telekinesis even though it's kind of cheating because you can bend light around you and make yourself invisible and you can make yourself fly and stuff i like the and stuff Somebody else writes: I wish that I could eat absolutely everything and anything without gaining weight, and that all of the extra nutrients would go to starving children in Africa. That's sweet. It's so funny. Whenever if, if I ever imagine myself having a superpower, it's never about giving anybody anything. It's always sneaking into a bank or <laughs> being invisible, being able to fly. Time travel, that's it. I would love to go back and watch the Beatles recording Revolver and Rubber Soul. Just sit in the studio and just watch it. I'm so excited about that documentary that's coming up. Excuse me. Uh, Somebody else writes, Ooh, excuse me again. Somebody else writes, I would make men fall in love with me so I could have my choice and have someone I actually want to be with. Someone else writes, I would want to be invisible. I wouldn't feel so insecure all of the time, and I could see any concert I wanted. I'd also be able to spend as much time with my therapist as I wanted to. Someone else writes, I would have shape-shifting powers to look and sound any way I wanted. I would leave my life and steal from rich people and live life traveling the world. I thought you were going to say and give it to the poor. Fuck the poor, I guess. Someone else writes, I want to be able to go back in time. I'd probably use it first to finally get that Bratz doll I wanted for Christmas, but wasn't able to afford it. I guess I'd also like I'd also try to like stop the JFK assassin or something if I had time. <laughs> I love how casual that is. I also like that you really are into the single shooter theory. The JFK assassin or something if I had time. Uh, Someone else writes, It would be to retract myself into my own personal void like the robot has on the Netflix film The Good Place. It would be my consciousness in a place where I could retreat to meditate and be away from people, light, noise, or smells if I needed to. This would make me an extremely peaceful person, and much more able to help those around me who are suffering. I hope, uh, you're already meditating because you know that's you can really kind of get to those places. Uh, I've had glimpses of that meditating, where it's just uh, I'm just feel like I'm I'm at peace with everything, even the chaos. Someone else writes, I would want the power to communicate with animals. I think it would be amazing to be able to talk to my cat or other animals I come across in my every day-to-day life, or even just know what they are thinking. I love that one. I'm not sure I would want to know what they're thinking, because I think I would feel differently about my dogs, because I think I would realize truly how much they are in it for the food and the pets. Uh, Somebody writes, invisibility might as well be anyway, and I would do terrible things to terrible people. Someone writes, I would love to fly. I would fly far and fast, even go around the world if I wanted to. I could pack a bag and take off to wherever I choose and be back in a matter of hours. I'd see the world and meet amazing people. If I ever got into trouble or came across someone that wanted to hurt me, I could just leap into the air and be gone. I could rescue people from burning buildings and save lots of money on gas. (laughs) love that last part. Save money on gas. The frugal superhero. Penny pincher. Coming coming in their outfit out of the 99 cent store. Oh my God, that's so fantastic. And then the light in the sky would just be a flashlight with used batteries. (laughs) Oh, this is an email I got from Mitch, and he writes, I wanted to send a response to the Shame and Secrets writer from the week's episode, who talks about her mixed feelings about loving her mother, even though she raised her to have intense body image problems from food and fat shaming, as well as wishing mom would die since the dementia has made her a shell of her former self. Letter writer, The universe has actually given you a tremendous gift with these two problems that solve each other. There is no better time than now to look your mother honestly in the eye, hold her hand, and say to her, I love you very much. You provided so many good things for me. But when I was a kid and you talked about being fat, it felt like you didn't care about how popular or smart or successful I was. When you criticized my weight and made comments about what food not to eat— It made me feel unlovable, and I still struggle with hating my body and believing I'm worthwhile even as an adult. I know we can't change the past, but I need to get this off my chest while you're you're still here so that there won't be resentment hanging over us when it's too late to say anything best case scenario she'll be in a moment of lucidity where she understands that she hurt you even if she doesn't really remember what happened it will resonate with some part of her deep inside maybe she'll even apologize if not with her words then with her eyes it might make her cry and you too but it will be instrumental in your healing and worst case scenario she might deny it or get angry or be completely unresponsive but she'll forget what you said in 15 minutes anyway because of her Alzheimer's, and you've still gotten to tell her the truth. Win-win situation, Paul. If you can pass this along to her somehow, I would appreciate it because my relationship with my own mother is very similar, which she inherited from her own mother, and I observe their relationship deteriorate during my grandmother's dementia as well. Sending love to all of you, and take care. Thank you, Mitch. Love it. We are sponsored this week, as always, by BetterHelp.com Online Counseling. You can start communicating with a therapist in under 48 hours. Uh, it's not a crisis line it's not self-help it's professional counseling done securely online i've used it for years i'm a big fan of it they have a broad range of expertise uh, which might not be uh, available locally Um, it's available for clients worldwide you can log into your account anytime and send a message to your counselor You'll get a timely and thoughtful response, plus you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions so you don't ever have to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room as you do with traditional therapy. It's more affordable than traditional online counseling and financial aid is available. Join the over 1 million people who've taken charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. And there is a special offer for you guys. You can get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com slash mental. And uh, if you would, make sure you include the slash mental part so they know you came from this podcast. That's betterhelp.com slash mental. And then finally, this is an awfulsome moment filled out by Hannah. And she writes, I was in an abusive relationship and he was in hospital. The nurse stood up for me when he was yelling at me and gave him a right telling off. I knew he was going to hurt me when we got home. But from that moment, I knew I was going to be a nurse. And now I am. I'm here with Andrea Ashley and Grand Gracie. Gracie's very excited that we have somebody over at the at the pad. Gracie, go chew on the sock I put on the ground for you. Uh That's okay. Andrea, you, you live in the Bay Area. You're down here visiting Los Angeles. Where where do we begin? You're a sober person. You've been sober for 13 years. Congratulations.
1: <sighs> yeah, and congratulations to the, to the rest of the world for that as well.
0: <laughs> the world hur- has been
1: a much happier, safer place since I put down the booze. <laughs> the hurricane
0: has dissipated off land.
1: <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, that was quite the shit show it, and still was in sobriety as well. <laughs> so
0: what what are the biggest issues? You you have a podcast called Adult Child yeah. Podcast, um, which do people in support groups would go, oh, I wonder if they talk about codependency.
1: Oh, hell yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that adult child... In a sense, I think it's in some ways it's the same thing as codependency in some sense, but just for those who might so I went and did some research and I went back, I didn't go back to all of your podcasts, but I went back until 2017. Mm-hmm. And I did a search and I couldn't find anything that was that had adult child. So right. I think that this is really exciting that people are gonna get to to hear this because that's why I created this podcast, because I think that this is a topic that's not giving getting the attention that it deserves. Um, And so for anybody who's not familiar with the term adult child, so initially it was adult children of alcoholics. Mm -hmm. Um, And so basically, you know, it related to the the characteristics, the traits that developed in adulthood as a result of growing up in an alcoholic household. But so that was in the late 70s, early 80s. But it didn't take them very long before they realized that other types of dysfunctional families could produce an adult child. So now... Uh, the term "adult child" is used to describe anybody who grew up in a dysfunctional family, which I'm sure everyone's saying. Uh, what family is, n- is not
0: dysfunctional? Right. There are some that aren't, but I yeah. think
1: w- this is what I say in my podcast. I think that it's not it's not the dysfunction itself that makes a family dysfunctional, right? Because every family is going to encounter dysfunction from time to time, but it's mm-hmm. more so how the dysfunction is handled, right? Like a dysfunctional family will just never deal with it or brush it under the rug. And so, yes, all families encounter dysfunction. But I would say not everybody, not every family is dysfunctional. Um, but it's really about these limiting beliefs, this faulty programming that occurs from growing up in a dysfunctional family that falls us into adulthood and makes life real fucking messy. Real messy. <laughs>
0: real messy. Uh, relationships and intimacy become difficult. Uh, it affects our professions because, uh, you know, there's the, the sense of, well, it's all going to fall to shit anyway. Why oh, try yeah. hard? Uh, so how what well, let's first start with what it was like <laughs> where where you were raised
1: well we can go so what I'll say, and we can get into that, but what I'll say is at nine years sober, I hit a bottom, an emotional bottom that was even more painful than when I hit my bottom related to alcoholism, and it was you know I'm, and we can get into it all, but nine years sober, leaving work at eleven in the morning to go pull my boyfriend out of a bar you know i'm like active in um you know support groups mm-hmm. um yeah and and even in in even more pain than i was um when i got sober but so for me you know i always knew that my upbringing was less than ideal but i also knew that other kids had had it way worse than i had you know i was never sexually or physically abused um, all of my needs were always accounted for. Most of my wants were always accounted for. Not your
0: emotional needs and wants, exactly. But your Physic-
1: physically, and we looked like a very nice, you know, family from the outside. So sure, yeah. My mom was an alcoholic. My dad was a workaholic and not available. I had no fucking clue, like how much it truly had impacted me. Mm-hmm. Um, it was your normal. Yeah, yeah, and I don't know too because I just so. So I found out my mom was an alcoholic when I was seven. So I'm an only child. So I grew up outside of Philly. And so the the three of us were out to dinner and I could tell that something was off. And uh, my mom had ordered ordered a beer and she's like barely touching it. And then at a certain point in the dinner, she took me to the bathroom and I said, what's wrong? And she said, well, I'm an alcoholic. And of course I'm seven. I don't and know what the fuck that means. And so Mm -hmm. I said, what does that mean? And she goes, that means that I can't drink. And it was like, even though... I didn't know what what that meant. I 1000% knew what it meant. And it was like I just developed this this sixth sense like when it came to her drinking. So, you know, my dad traveled often for work, which is when she drank the most. Um, and I would just I would wake up in the morning and I could just I would just sense it, you know, hours before um, and so thankfully, nothing horrible ever happened. Um, Did
0: she drink that night then?
1: Oh yeah, she would always yeah
0: and and would she become visibly drunk?
1: Yes, and I can tell like in a, you know, I could tell within seconds just in the her you voice it, you see it in
0: their eyes you yes. yeah, you hear it in their voice, their body posture, what they talk about, their attitude. Uh, a lot of times, uh they become very intense. I don't know. Was she one she, of the no, she no. was just
1: talkative and it was just like the more the tone in her voice. And you know, she was always there to pick me up from school and feed me and put me to bed, but she just did it drunk. Um and and my dad was I, I was parentified, right? Like I By I, your
0: dad or your mom? By
1: I mean, well, parentified in the sense that when my dad was out of town, I would fill in the role of caretaker and then parentified emotionally by my dad. Um, because what was going on in our home was a secret from the rest of the world. Right. Mm -hmm. And so when he was home, he was taking me with him to search the house for booze. I mean, I remember being eight years old and in the, in the liquor cabinet, taking a paint stick and marking, the, oh. like, because that, re- like, marking the levels of each bottle, because that really, you know, makes a big oh, difference, why right? Would like, you
0: bring a kid into that because he wanted you to monitor that when he was because gone?
1: because the co-alcoholic is just as sick as the other alcohol. I mean, right. there's no, I don't know, like, <laughs> you know, like, there's no sense in any of this. So yeah, so I was just very, um, and you know, and they fought a lot, and um, you know, I really think that my first addiction was to the dysfunction in the home because I would just sit on the steps and just get an adrenaline rush, you know, listening to them fight. Um, And so then what ended up happening – and so he, you know, he continued to travel. He knew that my mom was driving me drunk. Um, We just didn't – I was never told not to talk about it, but I just knew that we didn't talk about it, right? Um, So then when I was about nine, I started to develop horrible separation anxiety with my mom. And so it started with like not being able to spend the way, uh, spending the night away from home. And then it started where I, one night I woke up in the middle of the night, um, both of my parents were home and I just had this, this panic set in where I had to sleep in my mom's bed. Like I felt like I was going to die if I didn't do that. And so that set off this pattern where, then it went on for quite a while where I would wait, fall asleep in my own bed. And then I'd wake up in the middle of the night and I would go and switch spots with my dad. I think that there's a lot of things that were going on, but one thing in particular. So like, I remember one night when my dad was out of town, I woke up in the middle of the night and then walked into my mom's room and the light was still on and she had, she was passed out downstairs, like on the couch. I'm sure that that had something to do with it, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, But what happened was after several months of my parents trying every trick in the book to try to get me to you know sleep in my own bed um they sent me to uh you know a therapist and um it was in that moment that i became the the scapegoat and the identified patient of the family and i remember asking my mom later on when i was a teenager i'm like did you happen to mention
0: <laughs> that, you're <an> <laughs> <alcoholic> <laughs> that you're an
1: alcoholic and that you, you and Dad fall to the therapist no i didn't you know and i i've asked my therapist about that you know why is it because like i said i was never told that i couldn't talk about it but i just knew that we Mm. and you know what i also wonder too as i said i was addicted to it in a way and so i almost wonder if there was a part of me that felt like it would somehow stop
0: you'd take some of your power away
1: yeah or it it would stop like i got or like it was all very exciting to me you know like this having a secret from the rest of the world, this getting to play adult, like when my right. dad was at, out of town and like getting to search, like that, that's how I dealt with it was like through adrenaline. Like it was right. very exciting to me. Um, so yeah, so that's when I became the, you know, the, the scapegoat of the family. Um, and then I started acting out like 12 is when I started to drink. Cause I almost, I mean, obviously it's on both sides of my family, so I didn't stand a fucking chance, but, um, <laughs> You know, I'm sure in a way that the separation anxiety was, that was my cry for help, right? Like in a way that was probably, that was me trying to fix the family, right? Like me sounding the alarm bells, like something's going on here. Um, And that didn't change anything. Um, But then when I started drinking and using drugs at 12, um, and then eventually got sober at 19, that fucking worked.
0: Yeah. You threw a wrench into the family dynamic.
1: That worked. My mom stopped drinking as much and my parents stopped fighting because they had to deal with the shit show known as me. (laughs) Wow, that's
0: so interesting. Mm -hmm. That's so interesting. I've never heard of that before. Maybe people haven't mentioned it, but... And uh, in, in some ways, it kind of makes sense. But it's also kind of surprising that it was such a powerful thing that it got your mom to, to drink, which goes against well, the grain. Well, it was just temporary fix. Oh, okay. Because I was going to say no. it goes against the grain of the truth that no. you can't control someone else's drinking. No. So temporary, that makes yeah. sense. Yes.
1: Once I got sober. Yeah. Yeah. Rev it on backup.
0: <laughs> I mean, boy, does the phrase for a while uh, fit into uh, recovery and, you mm-hmm. know, support groups and family yeah. dynamics and all that stuff. So uh, what's the the next part? Uh, so you became the shit show at 19? Yeah,
1: 19. so, uh, no, at 12. Thir-
0: at 12? Tw- yeah. Okay.
1: So, yeah, 13. Um, and what know. did,
0: give me some snapshots.
1: So... So I started drinking in the sixth grade. I started... um, It's a good age. Yes. I, um, you know, it's interesting. I never thought... um, Some kids are like, I'm I'm never going to drink. You know, for me, it was like, I'm just not going to be like my mom. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, so I'm, I mean, I'm five foot 11. I I was this height at... um, in, by 13 like thank god i started smoking at 12 or i would have been like seven foot one which like no girl wants to be right <laughs> um so yeah when they say that like smoking's not good like it, you know it, it caused it prevented me from becoming like andre the giant yes. so that's good for me um but yeah I always,
0: I always thought that was a myth that smoking stunts your growth
1: <laughs> i don't know <laughs> yes. I can't, I can't. um i guess it's not uncommon for girls to stop growing at that age um But thank God it happened. Um, So, yeah, I mean, kicked out of private school in the seventh grade. Um, So me and my friend. Just hold on for a second. Hold
0: that thought. What's it like being 5'11 in sixth grade? Give me some snapshots (laughs) of that. Because I am sure we have some listeners who experience that. And it's not a common thing, Mm -hmm. um, at least in a school. Yeah. Uh, For more than one person to be that person.
1: Yeah. You know, I was, I was always super tall. So if you look at my pictures from like the fourth grade, like I'm as tall as a teacher, you know, it's interesting. Like it didn't, obviously I felt, I obviously knew I was tall, but it didn't have like a huge, um, I wasn't like majorly scarred by it. Um, my mom, my parents told me that, you know, eventually everyone would catch up, um, (laughs) it <laughs> didn't happen, really, um but yeah, it was I mean I, let's see like so in the sixth so in the sixth grade, we me and my girlfriends, we had these huge crushes on all the eighth grade boys, right, and we gave them all nicknames and and they found out about our nicknames and decided to return the favor with mine being just what every sixth grade girl wants to be called by a boy she has crushes on awkwardly tall girl. Um, (laughs) but like now I think that's fucking hilarious, you know, but that was like not so great. It it was fine. I had a friend that was like two inches taller than me and she was like a little bit like wider framed than me. So maybe that helped, but now I love it. I I mean, I love being tall. Um, but yeah, awkwardly tall girl, Mandria. I mean, jokes on them (sighs) now, (laughs) but you could like totally call me that now. I think it's hilarious. Um,
0: so fast forward to where, where I had cut you off.
1: Yeah, so seventh grade, me and me and my friend give blowjobs to two of the ninth grade boys thinking that that was going to make us super fucking cool, and that's oh, not wow. what happened at all.
0: Wow, I wish uh, someone could have intervened.
1: Yeah, so yeah, we just like became like, especially me, just the big whores at school because um, she had an older brother that kind of helped uh, protect her a little bit, but I'm an only child. Um, but you know what? It's just I think about that experience, and like my way of dealing with it was almost to like really like lean into the role, you know, right. and just kind of like be like, oh yeah, like I'm I'm choosing to be this way, right? right? So I get asked to leave that school, eighth grade. You know, I you get what I I, I was asked not to return to the school. Why? Because I just imploded. I mean, I started sneaking. I mean, I started after that happened. I started sneaking out of the house in the middle of the night. My parents put a security system on the house to keep me in, not to keep people out. Um, and I just started getting into trouble at school. Like, I got <laughs> it's so stupid. Like, I got caught for stealing a bowl of tortellini. Uh, I forged a note. Um, And the whole fucking school, like, you know, I was getting harassed on a daily basis. So this was... Um, you know, a very prestigious... Harassed about the sexual stuff? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so this is like a school that, you know, a private school that's been around since the late 1700s outside of Philadelphia. Um, did so, you have to wear wigs? No. <laughs> uh, so yeah, they they just said, uh, yeah, it was at the end of the school year and my um, my psychiatrist came, our our family psychiatrist came to the school to have a meeting and they were just like, it'd be best if she did not return. Um, so yeah, I started public school in eighth grade. It's, I mean, this is all just eighth grade. I came home one night, super drunk. I told my mom, I smoked pot every day. I eventually got sent to rehab. So I got sent away to inpatient four days after my 14th birthday in the eighth grade. I went to the Karen foundation. Um, you know, it wasn't that I was so bad off at that point, but First of all, it's on both sides of my family. And second of all, I was the identified patient. Like, you know, I was the scapegoat. Um, so uh, obviously I wasn't, you know, ready then. But I mean, it, then, then just fast forward. I mean, I, I became a daily drinker by, by 16. Um, in you know, the morning,
0: afternoon, just at night?
1: Every, in the afternoon. But by, by my senior year of high school, I was pretty much a 24-hour-a-day drinker. Um steel 40s of steel reserve (laughs) that really fucks up your insides Wow. but the thing with me is like and it was like boarding schools rehabs outpatients all that stuff um you know you really have to go to such great lengths like as a teenager um to get away with that kind of stuff especially when your parents are you know like i had to work to get away with like it wasn't like they were just letting me do whatever i wanted like they were on me
0: (laughs) Do you was there some high in having your own secret, do you think? Or was it just you were looking for the escape? No, I think I
1: just was traumatized and you know what I mean? Like I think I was just yeah, trying to check out. You know, it was just too much.
0: I, I, I know for me part of the allure of getting high was that you're not supposed to do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, it was, Riding our bikes into the woods and finding a place, you know, we'd put a plastic tarp up mm-hmm. and some milk crates to sit on and it just felt like we had our own house. Mm-hmm. And there was something that that just felt really cool about that.
1: Yeah, I think that that's how it started because I remember being in the sixth grade and telling people that I smoked pot before I even had ever smoked pot. So there definitely was something like cool about that. But it, it didn't take very long before it was no longer a choice or about like being cool. And so the thing for me is like, uh, and this probably happened around like 15 or 16. Like I'm the type of alcoholic that when I drink, I have a total personality change for uh, the worst. Uh. Like I just fucking suck to be around. And I mean, just causing scenes like here's an example for you. This is my one of my favorite stories. So I was um <laughs> I was at a birthday party and I was only initially they told me that I could only come if I didn't drink at all. Because of some scenes that I had caused in some prior incidences. So then I somehow get them to agree to letting me drink just beer only. And so, of course, I, I drink a bottle of wine by myself before I go. I go to the party. I start drinking beer. I then realize that there's like liquor like in a, in a friend's car, my boyfriend's car. I get kicked out of the party. I get escorted home by two of the people at the party. They drive me back to my house. I don't have my car keys. So what does Andrea do? Well, Andrea calls a taxi and has the taxi take her right back to the party. And then Andrea causes a huge scene... Causing the neighbors to call the cops, and then everyone at the party got arrested for underage oh, drinking. My God. I was that girl. Oh. Aren't you? Don't you wish you had an opportunity to drink with me? Like, oh, real fucking party God. animal. Yeah. So I had tons of friends, as I'm sure you can imagine. <laughs> That's what I mean. That's why the world should be very fucking grateful for the past 13 years. <laughs>
0: I, I had a friend in high school who would get in fights every time. We would we would go drinking and we go to parties and just like clockwork. I just remember he he went upstairs at somebody's house. That, you know their parents were gone. And Sure enough, he just comes <sighs> tumbling down the stairs, punching <laughs> someone. And we were just like, oh, Anthony's at it again. Oh,
1: Anthony and Andrea, we yeah. could have been a duo. Yeah. <laughs> um. So yeah. So then I. Yeah, I mean, I go off to Florida State. Um for six weeks. I lasted six weeks. And, um, you know, I'm so grateful that I was such a mess because I really think that that's part of the reason why I was able to get sober so young. It's just because how old were you? I got sober at 19. Well, so I got sober at 18 initially. Um, and we can talk about that. Um, but because of such, like I was unable like, I was incapable of having any sort of relationships with people. Like, it was, I was just so isolated and alone. And um, I also think, too, with my parents sending me away um, to, you know, sending me to outpatients and inpatients and boarding schools, in a way, I think that that helped progress my disease in a way because mm-hmm. it was like I had to, like, work harder. Um, I don't know if that, like, makes sense. It does but, make sense. Um, You know, like, when they were... And I think this goes to show you how much of an addict I was just in the eighth grade. So after I get out of treatment, my parents are drug testing me every week. My mom's taking me to the hospital to get drug tested. So I've tried to figure out other ways to get fucked up. So I would just take, you know, like a whole bottle of Dramamine or, you know, 12 Benadryl or cough syrup. And like the high from over-the-counter medications is so unenjoyable like, yeah. it just makes you so anxious and ir- it's not pleasant at all. Right. And every night I would do it and I'd be like, why are you doing this? Like, this feels horrible. And then I'd be doing it the next day because even at that age, in the eighth grade, being miserably fucked up <coughs> was a better option than being in my own sober skin. Yeah. So I think that goes to show that I had a problem pretty young.
0: It does. I mean, isn't that at the crux of untreated uh, Mm -hmm. alcoholism? You know, you can't live with it. You can't live without it or whatever your your drug of choice is. Mm -hmm. Uh, So So, let's
1: talk about sobriety. Yeah. And how we got here. So yeah. So I, I lasted six weeks at Florida State. So my parents had met in Florida back in the 80s. So they moved to jacksonville florida when i went off to school so i kind of i left florida state six whole weeks i haven't met anybody else that's lasted any shorter um, and so i cuz they were all
0: dead yeah
1: exactly <laughs> <laughs> um so so i come back to jacksonville and i i start going to um to i go into treatment I mean, I drank rubbing alcohol too. Like I, I was just a real great alcoholic. So, but, so I get sober, um, I'm 18 and I, I guess I have about, I don't know, three or four months and I have like a great ideas. We all do right to, to get into a relationship. <laughs> um, and so, so what happened was, so he, he decided that he was actually going to date this other girl in the program. And, um, I knew that I was going to see them at a meeting that night and I knew that there was clonopin in my house. So I was like, I, it wasn't mine. I had to take one. I was like, I, I just need to take this so that I can, you know go face them at the meeting. So like I go to the meeting and I remember when I got home, I Googled is one pill a relapse. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. If it's not prescribed to you and you're taking it to change the way that you feel. And then it was like a week later, I was like, Oh, it's been a whole week. Like I have not thought about taking a pill. Like you can totally take one. And before you know it, I'm off to the races, but I'm still actively working a program. I'm going to meetings. I'm doing step work. um, And yeah, and then it led to me taking a trip to New York, sneaking out of an apartment, going to a bar, talking to the guy next to me about AA the whole or 12 step program the whole night. Uh, the next day I fly back to Jacksonville and I picked up a 9-month chip and I told the meeting about how I had really wanted to drink on this trip but that I didn't. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Um and then the gig was up and and then I got sober uh, September thirteenth two thousand eight is is my sobriety date now so that's when I was was nineteen, um and you know if you had told me on that day that I would be in even more pain at <laughs> nine years sober than I was. Um, with one day sober, I'm not sure I would have stayed the course, but like, yeah. thank fucking God I was not privy to that information because now I'm so, so grateful for that pain. But I mean, my story now is, um, you know, I'm sure you're familiar with like broken picker syndrome, right? Oh yeah. Oh, yeah. So we all kind of, we all come into the program. I think with broken picker syndrome, we all like get sober and we don't know how to pick the right people. Um, But the hope is that (laughs) as one stays sober and, you know, works the steps and changes, like hopefully in time, our pickers will improve. And I saw my girlfriends who I got sober with, I saw that start to happen for them. Mm -hmm. And that was not the case with me. And not only was my picker not improving, uh, my mental state The way I felt, the way I acted was getting worse in each relationship. And I couldn't figure out like what the fuck was wrong with me. Like I literally had no idea what was going on. And it wasn't until so my very first episode and everyone should go listen to it. So my very first episode of my podcast, it's called The Tale of Two Bryans. So I dated two guys named Brian, and they were the catalyst to my adult. At the same time? No. Okay. <laughs> one at seven years sober and one at nine years sober. And they were the catalyst to my adult child bottom and the beginning of my healing journey. So I was dating Brian number one. Um, Who
0: I prefer to Brian number two.
1: Yes, do. You? <laughs> so Brian number one, um, we date for less than a month clearly has a drinking problem so that's okay so i was looking at um i don't know if it was on your website or whatever but it says you said something like yeah i realized that i was like an asshole like and a drunk Mm -hmm. and so so all of the guys that i dated in those seven years preceding they were either um they were all assholes and emotionally unavailable some were active alcoholics and some were not so, you know, Brian, number one, crashes and burns in less than a month. And I literally have a reaction to where you would think that my husband of 30 years and all of my <laughs> children just died in a plane crash. Like, that's like literally how I'm reacting. Like, it's been less than a month. And I like literally I had a panic attack at work. I had to have my mom, you know, come out. And that's what was happening to me. You know, it was... Every relationship that I would get into, as soon as I would get into a relationship, my mind would get hijacked. My peace of mind would become totally dictated on the actions or inactions of another or my perception of them. Mm -hmm. And so this relationship ends and I am like freaking the fuck out. And that's when I had my first aha moment. And the tiniest bit of space was created in my head to where I could see that there was no fucking way that this reaction... Could have anything to do with, with Brian. Brian Number One. Yes. Wow. There was no way.
0: Wow. Some people live their whole lives without ever realizing that get married six times, just never go. Wow. I'm the common denominator. Mm-hmm. There's a, a saying in the support groups: uh, if it's hysterical, it's historical. <laughs> yeah, which I that's love. so
1: true. It is. And so um, and
0: so talk about that that moment. What
1: So so it was it was having that realization that there's no way that this is about him. And the second the second aha was this is a feeling that I felt often as a child. And I realized that the way that I was feeling was the same feeling of separation anxiety that I would feel when I would try to spend the night away from home or when I would wake up in the middle of the night and have to go sleep in my mom's bed. And it was in that moment that um I realized that these things were connected. That my issues in dating had little to do with the men I was dating, and everything to do with my childhood. You know, it's really interesting. I so I, I had the honor of going on Dr. Drew's podcast, and he was really surprised that at seven years sober, that like nobody had fucking like made this like notice that this was probably what was going, like made okay. the suggestion that that was what was going on. So I don't know what that's about. Um, It would have been nice to, well, it all happened exactly the way it was supposed to. So I, so it's like a few weeks later and I'm, I'm at a support group meeting and I hear the swimming share at the floor. She's 30 years sober and she's talking about this emotional bottom that she hit at around seven years sober, which is what I have. And mm-hmm. it was about, it was over a relationship and, And it was uh, through this bottom that she realized the impact that her childhood had on her and that the transformation that had occurred from that was even more profound than when she got sober. And she mentioned that she had read this book, Adult Children of Alcoholics and Dysfunctional Families. So as soon as I leave the meeting, I go home, I download that book on my Kindle and I start reading it and I can't stop reading it. And it was like for the first time, I, like, in words were all of my thoughts and my feelings and just having the the realization that I was not alone. That
0: um, must have felt great. It,
1: it was crazy. So the, the laundry list is the traits, uh, the 14 characteristics of an adult child. And let me pull up. So the one that really spoke to me the most is... And everyone, if you're wondering, here's the thing. If you're wondering whether or not you're an adult child, don't try to figure out if your family is dysfunctional or not. <laughs> like, don't waste your time there. Go and look at this laundry list. And if you relate to these, it's really more about relating to these traits rather than trying to figure right. out whether the fuck you, you know, uh, had a dysfunctional family or not. So the one that spoke to me the most... Read all of them. I if will. You would. Okay. So... Okay. The f- the laundry list, the fir- 14 traits of an adult child. These are characteristics we seem to have in common due to being brought up in an alcoholic or otherwise dysfunctional household. So when they started this group, uh adult children of alcoholics, so it was a spin-off from Al-Anon. So Al-Anon is meant more for the families, you know, spouses of um, of the alcoholic and what this group that started adult children was they realized that the issues that they were dealing with were a little bit different than having like a spouse or a loved one and so when they started this group what they realized was that regardless even if the details of their upbringings looked different that they had these common characteristics in common so this was as a result of them realizing this they came up with this list so, and i do not relate to all of them so you don't have to relate to all of them to, to be an adult child. So don't try to talk yourself out of it like that. <laughs> okay. So number one, we became isolated and afraid of and afraid of people and authority figures. I don't relate to that one. Two, we became approval seekers and lost our identity in the process. It's a very common one. Three, we are frightened by angry people and any personal criticism. four, This one's spot on. We either become alcoholics, marry them or both, or find another compulsive personality such as a workaholic to fulfill our sick abandonment needs. Five, we live life from the viewpoint of victims and are attracted by that weakness in our love and friendship relationships. Six, we have an overdeveloped sense of responsibility and it is easier for us to be concerned with others Rather than ourselves, this enables us not to look too closely at our own faults. Seven, we get guilt feelings when we stand up for ourselves instead of giving into others. Eight, we become addicted to excitement. Now, I didn't understand what that meant at first, but now I do. And it's mm-hmm. the adrenaline. That, that's, that's little Andrea sitting on the stairs getting revved up looking to listening to her parents fight. the other way i see it happen is whenever i'm out and about and there's like some sort of like police activity going on i have to stop and watch (laughs) you know yeah (laughs) okay number nine we confuse love and pity and tend to love people we can pity and rescue Ten, we have stuffed our feelings from our traumatic childhoods and have lost the ability to feel or express our feelings because it hurts so much. Eleven, we judge ourselves harshly and have a very low sense of self-esteem. Okay, number 12. This is the one that I most, when I read this, I was like, holy shit. We are dependent personalities who are terrified of abandonment and will do anything to hold on to a relationship in order not to experience painful abandonment feelings, which we we receive from living with sick people who are never there for us emotionally. (sighs) 13. Alcoholism is a family disease. We become para-alcoholics that could also be codependent um, and took on the characteristics of that disease, even though we did not pick up the drink. And then 14 uh, para-alcoholics or codependents are reactors rather than actors. And so the way that I take that is, you know, like this situation with Brian, number one, right? Like I, I was reacting to something in my past. Mm-hmm. I wasn't acting in what, what him breaking up right. with me. Yeah. Um. So, so uh, so a couple weeks later, I see this woman at the meeting again, the woman that said the thing about the book. I run up to her at the end of the meeting and I go, I tell her, I'm like, I just read that book. It's amazing. Blah, blah, blah. And she looks at me and she goes, that's great. Um, But I just want you to know that just reading this book, that's not going to be sufficient. This is going to take you years. Yeah. it's like you.
0: driving by the gym yes. and going, oh, now I'm physically fit.
1: Exactly. Years to work through but if you do the work you said. she said you have to treat this as seriously as your alcoholism and i remember thinking years like years like lady i'm 28 like i'm basically a senior citizen <laughs> like i need to have this fixed like yesterday but at most two months or so and i just remember thinking I just really hope her childhood was like way more fucked up than mine, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and so I decide I'm like, okay, I'll take a year off from dating and I'll read this book. And, um, I'm sure I'm going to be good, but just like learning you have cancer doesn't make the cancer go away. Like simply realizing that my issues in romantic relationships were a result, a result of my unresolved childhood issues. Like it didn't t- change shit. And so enter fucking Brian number two and um did he arrive
0: with fanfare
1: yeah exactly i sure did on our first date i right before uh, i left i had shaved my legs and i cut my ankle and i didn't have any band-aids and so i was like thinking it would finish before and it didn't so i went like the diy route and i took a little like piece of toilet paper and like put a little spit on it and stuck it on my cut it 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 didn't work for me in all prior attempts, but this time it did not. So I, I walk into the sports bar just with blood, just all over my ankle. What a metaphor. And I'm just like, hi, like I'll be right back. Like I got to get a aid So yeah. Um, but Brian wasn't an asshole. Brian, Brian number two, wasn't an asshole. Brian number two was just a drunk and I reached new depths of pain. I felt crazier than ever. um, it was like the most painful six months of my life. And
0: <sighs> when you would be experiencing that pain, mm-hmm. did any of the stuff that you had read po- Oh, yeah. But you were powerless.
1: So, you know, I think that when we're is, hit- that, is
0: that a yes or a no?
1: Yes. So I think that when we... I think, and I talk about this in my podcast a lot, you know, I think that... First, we have awareness, right? Mm -hmm. But I think a lot of the times we don't spring immediately into action. And I think that hitting a bottom is like, one, having awareness, and then two, like having acceptance. And so when I read that, when I read the book initially, and I saw those traits, I'm like, okay, this is my problem. But I did not think that this was as serious as my alcoholism. I didn't think that this was something that I was powerless over or that it mean, I I had no idea the true gravity of it. Right. And so I think that part of the process of change is having awareness. And then that period of time where we don't change and we sit in that awareness Mm -hmm. and we keep doing what we're doing. And then that makes our pain so much greater. And then hopefully from that place, we can then take action but yes i it was very i knew what the fuck was going on yeah. and but- i couldn't i couldn't i, I remember having this v- one memory like we ended up spending three nights in a in a ritz carlton in, in san francisco but it was really more like a CD like room that you you know pay by the hour because he literally was just drinking 72 hours we never left the room and i just remember like looking at myself in the mirror and just like thinking how the fuck like how the fuck did you get yourself here and just hating myself what,
0: what was the sick part of your brain what was the attraction to it was there still excitement was it a feeling of guilt that he was your responsibility was it
1: i think it's just more just like a, a fear of abandonment
0: fear of being alone
1: yeah um but it's interesting because i am not somebody that hopped from one relationship to the next. So I would have significant periods of time between each relationship and in those periods of time, like I felt good, you know, like I would, mm. after I got over the initial heartbreak, um, but it was once, once I would get into a relationship, it just, the switch would go off. Right. And it's like, I'll do anything to hold on to a relationship, even the most miserable fucking relationship.
0: What were you trying to control his drinking or influence his drinking? And what did yes. that look like?
1: <sighs> um, I mean, not, I mean, yes and no, like I was more of like a caretaker, but I wasn't really trying to, I wasn't like pouring booze down the drain or, you know, sometimes I would try to get us to like leave a bar, but, but he wouldn't, and I would just stay. Um, but was really, what was really interesting in this relationship was just, um, seeing, him start to realize how much of a problem he because you know I was very open about it um and at first when I told him he had a problem he really blew me off and by the end of that relationship um I think he knew that he did but you know thank god he he was the one that ended things with me um because I don't know how long I would have stayed in it um But by the end of that, it was just so crystal clear what just how big of an issue this was. And I really was at the place where I was willing to go to any lengths. And I knew that I had to treat this like just as seriously as my alcoholism. And, um, you know, I had worked with a therapist back when I lived in Florida for a while, but this wasn't her area of expertise. Um, And I just think that it's so important for I think that yeah there are like ACA is a 12-step program but I think that it's so important that the 12 steps can help but I do think that therapy really is the key for all of this stuff because because this is trauma and I didn't realize that it was trauma you know because I thought trauma had to be one huge catastrophic event. Um, but that's why I do think it's so important that we, you know, and to find a therapist who really understands this, like the back of their hand. And I did, you know, I Googled adult children of alcoholic therapists and I found my therapist and she has saved my fucking life. Um, and I saw her twice a week for the first year and a half and I couldn't really afford it, but my life depended on it.
0: And so what were some of the breakthroughs that you (sighs) had with her and what did those feel like?
1: Well, so what ended up happening was so he breaks up with me and um, I start working with her and then about a month later, he comes back out of the woodwork and um, we start hanging out again. We're not like dating, but we're like hanging out every once in a while. And so what starts and I'm being honest with her about it. That was probably the biggest thing was this was probably the first time in my life that I was ever 100% honest. So important. I was never when it came to guys when i was in it with my ther- with sponsors and stuff i would I, I would only tell the truth when i would you know be in a shitload of pain mm-hmm. but then once that wore off i would go back to being dishonest so this was like the first time that like i was doing something that i knew i shouldn't be doing and i was being completely honest with her but but so what started to happen was like after we would hang out i mean Brian number two i would be like huh that was not very enjoyable <laughs> You know, like, I'm like, oh, I didn't really have that much fun. And, um, and, but then it's like the built in forgetter, right? Like a few days would go by, like he would text me and I have like Mm -hmm. this fantasy in my head of like what it is when we hang out. And I just remember, um, saying to her, like, I don't understand, like, why do I keep doing this? Why? I don't enjoy spending time with him. And part of it was like a feeling guilty, right? Like I felt like it was really going to hurt him if I cut him off completely. Without me. Um, but she just said to me and she was so true. She's like, you just, you obviously have more of a lesson to learn here. Um, and I did after about six months of like working with her and getting to see him, I was able to cut him off completely. Um, but the big thing with like the, the breakthroughs and, you know, and what has led to this podcast is you know, a big realization I had was how not once had I considered what a fulfilling career would look like to me. So at the time I was a CPA, I was working in public accounting, doing audit. And, um, I just had this realization that not once had I considered what a fulfilling career would be. And that all I had cared about was finding a man, <laughs> you know, and, and getting married and just realizing this, um, this un tapped potential within and just, just kind of like letting my talents and strengths go to, go to waste. And that it was time for, to change that, you know? And so, yeah, no, I, I embarked on a journey to heal from my upbringing, but I really embarked on a journey to like figure out why the fuck I was put on this earth, like to find my, my purpose, my true calling. And, um, you know, what I've learned about myself over the past several years is that, a big part of it is like my vulnerability is um, I just have a way of connecting with people. I'm so open and basically my higher power just constantly put strangers into my life or just different people where it was perfectly clear that I was supposed to disclose information about my, and I just had all these extremely profound experiences, especially with strangers. Um, And then it just became very clear to me that Part of my purpose was around this um this adult child stuff because I just feel like there are so many people out there who don't have a fucking clue mm-hmm. that the recurring issues that they encounter in life, whether that be at work or in friendships or in romantic relationships, is actually a result of like some unresolved childhood pain. Mm-hmm. Um, because just like me, like I, I didn't know for so long. And I really think that this is like the key, like this is really the core of it. I really feel like this is where the true healing happens is when we address that shit that's been ingrained in us our entire lives. Mm-hmm. We have no idea that's just been circulating in our head over and over and over. And just the, the transformation that has occurred with me, like as I continue, and still, there's still more work to be done. But over the past four years, I mean, the transformation has been fucking mind-blowing. Like, I am a different person. And that's why I just felt like it's so important Mm -hmm. that we talk about this stuff.
0: Um, I want to know what that looks like. But before that, uh, what was it like sitting in the pain, not numbing that with a relationship or booze and feeling those childhood feelings that you had stuffed down your whole life?
1: See, that's the thing, though. It's like I've always and I think that's also why it was hard for me to see too that how impacted I was because I've always been able to talk about what happened. Mm-hmm. It's not it's not like I I've always talked about it, but almost kind of more like um, like I'm at a news seat, like I'm a reporter, right? Mm-hmm. Like I'm at like a, a house fire. And but very very matter of fact, but in reality, it's my house is on fire. (laughs) You know, I love that analogy. (laughs) Um, But that's like how it had always been. Um, For me, it was like I was just so like once I hit that bottom and started working with my therapist, like I I was just like so like ready to do the work. I was talking about it with my friend last night because she was talking about. I don't know who she was talking about, but about how how draining it is for this person to talk about this stuff in therapy and for me it's just been it's been very eye-opening, but I wouldn't say it's been like very emotionally like taxing. Mm-hmm. Um but more just kind of um it's just been amazing to kind of just dig deeper and just continue to see truly how um how crazy and and sick it all is. and
0: So it's been more kind of epiphany, <sighs> clarity-based than fetal position, yes. got to get the poison out through the tears. 100%. Yeah. Well, that's interesting because I had always kind of assumed that for everybody it was, uh, you know, the fetal position, tears, also with the, uh, the other part. Who knows? Maybe you get tears in your future.
1: I would... No, I, there, that is one thing is... There's still, I think, a lot of sadness yes. that still needs to come up. Um, and I know that. And <laughs> Can you
0: feel a sadness sometimes being held at bay or a melancholy?
1: So they're, like, supportive of the podcast. I, maybe we can cut this out. They're, like, so fucked up, like, still. like, And it's just so insane and more toxic than ever. It's, you know, I once I got sober and started doing this, like, it's just been... <laughs> a downward spiral for them but like the one area that where sadness does really come up for me is like um while they're like quasi supporter of this like it, it makes me really sad that they can't like truly be so like proud of me for doing this and i know it's not because that they don't want to but they're just like they're they just have not to they're not own. capable of it right. they're so far gone yeah um but like, yeah, like this, this podcast is like having a huge impact on people. Like, I mean, I've just received and I had no built in following when I started. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just been kind of like, war. and I mean, you wouldn't, I'm sure you get them too, but like just hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of messages in the way that it's impacting them. And I just wish that, um, yeah, that makes me sad that they can't be happy for me, you yeah. know?
0: Yeah. That sucks. That sucks.
1: But, yeah, I mean, I never know. Like, they're both horrible alcoholics. I never know, like, when I could get a call that one of them is dead. But, yeah, I do feel like there's more sadness that needs to come up. Um, (laughs) I'm ready for it to come up.
0: Have you uh, ever read the book Facing Love Addiction by Pia Melody? Mm -hmm. And and did that ring bells for you?
1: Yeah. But, you know, it's kind of interesting – another insight that Dr. Drew had for me was because he was talking about how you you don't hop from one relationship. to the next. he was like, it's almost like you just have like this pure codependency mm-hmm. and maybe not so much like the love addiction, right. Yeah, um, which I thought was interesting. Yeah.
0: And forgive me if it sounds like I'm trying to label it. Not I'm at not. All. It's just I know that... You can that say whatever you want. <laughs> people say that that is a book that... Uh, it is. You know, really helps them when they can't leave uh, toxic really. relationships. And sometimes that relationship... You know, being a relationship with uh, you know your family of origin, mm-hmm. um, you know, love addiction can uh, present itself in your relationship with a parent. It's
1: it is, sick. and I think that this stuff is, you know, my therapist will say it's like the alcohol, the drugs. So like in a sense, I don't know. It's it's almost like easier in a way. I just feel like this other stuff, the the, the people stuff, the relationships, the codependency. It's just because it's not like we. We have to have relationships, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's not like we can just like cut it off completely. Um,
0: You're talking about with family or just in general? In general. Yeah.
1: So do you relate? I mean, how, what's your... Do you, oh, yeah. You, yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. That, that, uh, all of this rings a lot of bells for me. Uh, you know, I grew up in an alcoholic home, very high functioning, mm-hmm. um, very uh, kind of... Underneath uh, the radar, my dad's alcoholism. But, uh, you know, the things that affected me much more were how my mom, you know, played her role in Mm -hmm. the in the family sickness and spousifying me at seven and Mm -hmm. having me be her therapist and Mm -hmm. crossing boundaries with my body and. All kinds of, all kinds of stuff.
1: And was it talked, was your dad's drinking ever spoken about?
0: I didn't even know he was an alcoholic till I was 18 and leaving for college. And my mom said, watch your drinking. I was like, why? Alcoholism runs in the family. Who? Dad? What? Oh, yeah. He keeps vodka hidden around the house. My my dad was very good at, at uh, it. And made sense now why he always had mints in his uh, nightstand. I never understood. Why does he always have mints? Yeah.
1: I've wondered about that for me, about what is the impact that, like, you—I mean, were you somebody that you always just sensed that something was off, but you didn't know, but it wasn't ever spoken about, correct?
0: I I sensed at seven that I had a better understanding of people and emotions than my parents did. I felt sorry for both of them by seven, because my mom's sadness um, was—and her frustration with my dad was— parent because she spoke openly about it. But I knew something was the matter with my dad because he was so trapped in his head and had such difficulty relating to people. He was such an isolator. So when he tried to kill himself in his 60s, I was not surprised Mm. at all. Yeah.
1: Because I've wondered about that, you know, because I think for most kids, they probably sense that something's off. Yeah. But I wonder, like, with me, with the impact, like, I knew everything, you know, I was like mm-hmm. told it at such a young age, and I just wonder, like, if what kind of a difference it in an you, it impact takes your innocence
0: away. You know, it 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 does, and I don't say that to throw my parents under the bus. I, you know, they coped with the tools that they had, and they're—I believe—they are both good people. I just think they were given such overwhelming demons. Mm-hmm. Uh, to to battle, I I have compassion for them. I had to cut contact with my mom, but I still have love mm-hmm. for her. I, it's but I do s- still feel sadness that I that I can't have a relationship with her because it's it's unhealthy and it's toxic for me. And
1: how long has it been? Twenty twelve. Wow.
0: Yeah, nine years. And
1: yeah. then what about do you have relationships with your siblings? I
0: do with my brother. Yeah. Yeah. He's my he's my only sibling and my dad passed away. I and killed, does he have a
1: relationship him. with your mom?
0: <laughs> um he they never he died in no 06. They never uh divorced. No, your brother. Oh, does what? He's yes. Just, he has yeah. a relationship with uh with your mom. With my mom. Um tenuous at at best.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. She's a, a she's a handful. She's a handful. So, and that's not to put all the blame on her as, as you know you know it's a family dynamic and 100%. everybody plays some role that is not healthy
1: exactly and it is interesting i often do think that the one that's the non-alcoholic parent is the more sicker one
0: yeah um because it's harder to convince them that they have a part
1: a hundred percent in this yeah. it's um and i really like what you said about the the lack of blame like i really try to make that an emphasis on my show why it's so important we have to talk about what happened Mm -hmm. but it's not an exercise of blame you know our parents are just a product of their upbringing just as we are you know this shit doesn't just like pop out of nowhere it's not like all of a sudden like one day you know our parents decided to to suck like they're they are just a product of their own upbringing but we have in order to heal we have to talk about what happened to us because this is a process of of identifying and understanding and discarding you know Mm -hmm. these limiting beliefs and these faulty fears and these faulty programming and we're not going to be able to do that unless we talk about what actually happened it's
0: so true Uh, i think a lot of us who who have processed stuff suddenly realize Oh, I would always pictured that I needed to become more mm-hmm. to get where I wanted to in life when actually the majority of it was letting go
1: mm.
0: of parts of myself that I had formed as a child to survive, mm-hmm. you know, that if I don't give everyone what they want, they'll hate me, they'll gossip about me and I'll die alone.
1: So what was one what was one way that your upbringing manifested um in your life? Let's say in sobriety. Like what was maybe a, a uh, early,
0: early on wanting to save people, mm-hmm. um, lending them money uh, mm-hmm. when they had burned their life to the ground rather than letting them feel the full brunt of, of their decisions. Mm-hmm. Uh that changed after a couple of years. Um And then realizing that I was incapable of intimacy Mm. and having to go to another support group for that. And that's Mm -hmm. where I processed the, the, the childhood stuff. That's where the core issues. And I realized, oh, my drinking was just a way for me to be able to cope with my intimacy issues and my unfaithful behavior. And, you know, yeah, that was... It's kind of similar where you talked uh about being sober for a number of years and yet there was this issue that
1: was bigger i think it was even more powerful than my i feel the same way i feel like my alcoholism and my addiction it was it was just a symptom of yes. my core issue which i believe is the, the the disease of family dysfunction yeah like i truly yeah. believe that that is my core issue and that is actually our all of our core issues. Um, and if we can address that stuff, I mean, the impact that it has is, is mind blowing. Cause it this is. shit just gets passed from generation to generation, um, even in very subtle forms. Mm-hmm. And so that's why I just felt like it was so important um, that this is talked about more. And so I try to do it in a very, um, I think it's, as I'm sure you, you agree, it's also important that we find humor when we talk about this mm-hmm. stuff too. Like, yeah, I was fucking like crazy and I did a lot of like really cringy shit, mm-hmm. but I think it's hilarious and it's like, it shaped me into the person that I am today, mm-hmm. you know? And today I'm so grateful for all of that pain. Yeah. Um. And I'm sure as you would agree too, it's like as alcoholics, as addicts, we don't grow unless we're we in hurt. pain. Yes. And so the thought that I was under the impression when I got sober that like I would just get sober and things would be like pretty okay. Like, yeah, life on life's terms might happen, but I was under the impression that pain of my own making ceased the day I entered sobriety. Right. right. And so that was, there was so much shame around that Mm -hmm. when I had nine years sober and I was leaving work at 11 in the morning to go pull Brian number two out of a bar. The fact that like I was, you know, the source of my pain and I thought that I was uh unique um mm-hmm. and what i've learned is like that this is very common for a lot of people between five to ten years this other stuff the real causes and conditions mm-hmm. come to the surface but that it's important that we get some sobriety under our belt before we're really able to yeah. to look at because that this is the real shit
0: it is the real shit yeah well, thank you for coming by. People can find your podcast, yes, Adult, adult child. child Podcast. Just Adult, just just adult, adult Child. Just Adult Child. Yes. Okay.
1: Start on episode one, The Tale of Two Bryans.
0: Okay. And uh, social media, they can find at you at...
1: Adult Child Pod.
0: Adult, adult Child Pod. Andrea, thank you so much for, for a coming and sharing. Thank yep. you. Love talking to her. Be uh, be sure to check out her uh, her podcast. Let's dive into some surveys. This is from the Ask Paul Anything survey filled out by Crazy Cat Person. And they write, uh, Do you ever struggle with fears of being judged or seen as gross by a therapist? I have. I have experienced that. But that was mostly early on in, in therapy. And I very quickly, because I had compassionate therapists, uh, very quickly kind of got over that And uh, that was a a huge uh, relief. Um, How did you deal with that? Um, Well, you know, I decided uh, in my first couple of sessions, sessions to just vomit it all up, especially the stuff that was really hard to talk about. And then I was able to relax after that. And I wore a tuxedo and talked a lot about the opera. So that's kind of a... They, they thought I was fancy. And so if you appear fancy, they can't see you as grossed. Uh, another question, do you prefer your therapist to be a man or a woman? Uh, I've had both. And I think I prefer uh, a female therapist because honestly, that's where most of my, most of my issues um, are based is, you know, most of my shit has to do with my mom. I'm sure there's there's stuff to do with my dad, but you know he was he was mostly absent uh, emotionally, and um, you know my mom was kind of the one that was uh, doing all the the shit that kind of kind of fucked me up. But um, yeah, I think everybody. Feels comfortable with with uh, well maybe not everybody I think some people feel more comfortable with one gender or the other. This is from the Struggle in a Sentence survey filled out by BGM, and uh, she struggles with depression, ADD, anxiety, and compulsive eating. In a snapshot from her life, she writes every day. Whether I'm working from home or the office, I sit in front of my computer scrolling TikTok or playing solitaire while mentally screaming at myself to do something. Oh my God, did I relate to this one so much, and I think a lot of people do. And I would say, what what would happen if you didn't yell at yourself and you just enjoyed playing the TikTok? Why don't you do that and see what happens? You know, if your life starts to fall apart, then maybe look at it. But in the meantime, why don't you cut yourself some slack? We waste so much time in our lives telling ourselves we should be something else. And that doesn't mean you know, that we should forsake you know, the desire to grow and... Pursue our dreams, but fuck, nobody does that perfectly. We're uniquely positioned to be our own best friend, and so often we're our own worst enemy. This is from the struggle in a sentence survey, and this was filled out by. Um, this this is heavy. Nothing to do with with sexual abuse in this one, but fuck, is this heavy? It has to do with uh, with hoarding. And um, let's see who filled this out. Fuck it. I cut the name off. Sorry about that. Um, They write, this is a short story about my childhood that I wrote while struggling with my borderline personality disorder and trying to avoid self-harm. My therapist has said I should share it one day. I wanted to share it with you because I love the podcast and think that it makes a huge difference to all of us on the struggle bus. Thank you for being a light to those who want to break cycles. Sorry if this story is too long. Oh, Nikki. It's from Nikki. She writes, I want someone to look at my life and cry. I want someone to read every scene back at me so I can be sure it's real. I want them to read every scene back to me so that I can be sure that I am hurt and not just selfish and crazy. I want someone to go back and see it. I want them to open the door of my mother's house and gag as their eyes water at the sour stench of decay. They want to leave. They don't want to smell it anymore. But they have to stay like I did. They take a step forward crunching the trash below, and the room explodes into flies and gnats, surprised at the sudden movement after hours, maybe even days, of still silence. They look around and realize that they cannot pinpoint the source of the smell penetrating and tainting their clothes, hair, and soon their skin. It's all of it. The sink full of gray water and the mold slowly expanding over the piles of dishes and what they suppose uh, was once food. Various trash covers the floors and counters, paper plates, and plastic forks scattered across the room told them that the moldy dishes had been long forgotten. Maybe they walk forward, attempting and failing to avoid the rotting food and garbage on the ground. Occasionally, a new stench would attack their face as they accidentally squished their toes into long-forgotten hamburgers and some sort of animal feces. Maggots writhe writhe out of the chunks of rot. Why is everything covered in tiny brown dots, and what are these small brown sacks? It's the flies, vomiting and breeding, vomiting and breeding, vomiting and breeding. They walk to the bathroom. Briefly, they decide, because the stench is unbearable. Piles of animal feces lay undis- undisturbed in the tub. Various clothes strewn across the floor, smeared with human feces. And then there's the toilet, filled to the brim with raw sewage and soaked toilet paper. Obviously, it hadn't been flushed in a long time. You could not sit on this toilet without getting the sewage on your bottom. The smell of feces and urine is too much, so they turn around. By the hallway are two doors. They open the door to the left. Pink walla decorated with flowers, covered in those disgusting brown spots. Trash filled the room, waist-deep in some places. A fish tank sat forgotten by the door, filled with green water and a long-dead fish. A child's room, abandoned. A low, guttural sound startles the stranger. They turn around and see a cat, filthy, fur sticking together in clumps, Flies circled the poor creature, her face diseased. Maybe she's blind. Her bones stick out, a striking reminder of old zombie films. She will be dead soon, the stranger thinks. They open the door to the right and gasp in surprise. More piles of trash. Dead bird in a cage. Plastic cups filled with urine scattered on the shelves. But unlike the others, the room is not the stranger's focus. An obese woman lies on a stained bed, drooling and snoring. A bottle of personal lubricant lay next to her. But next to the bed on the floor lay a small bare mattress, one pillow, one blanket, and a little girl. She's small and dirty, her her hair tangled. A tangled, matted mess. She has one Barbie doll in her hand. She stares at the stranger's. She doesn't say anything. What could she say? But she stares an empty stare, exhausted, hungry, filthy, sad. Years on her face, satiated in the stench of this place, alone. And the stranger cries. Wow. It, it, it isn't often that something leaves me speechless doing this podcast but that i think that speaks for itself and thank you for sharing that and i'm so sorry that that was your experience this is an email that i got from alessio ricci and uh they write hello my dearest did you get our first message yours sincerely alessio please did you get our first message question mark um, I did. I remember our first message. I remember us getting together and writing our first message. Uh, just the way we, we caressed each other's faces while we talked about what font to use. Who would get our first message? Would we send it to you? Would we send it to me? And we decided to flip a coin. And because we were in Italy, I remember you said, let's do a, a Roman coin. And uh, we flipped it, and uh, that didn't decide anything because one side of the coin was pasta and the other side was pasta. And so we wrestled. We went to the Coliseum, and we wrestled. And just as I was about to pin you, we got chased out of there by a 2,100-year-old lion. Well, it, was more, it, it more shooed us out of there. But... I don't know if I am ready to commit to you. My heart has been broken by other European email collaborators and I, do, I just don't, I'm still a little raw and I don't know if I'm ready to, to jump back into the European email collaborating pool. But thank you, Alessio. This is from the Shame and Secrets Survey filled out by a woman who calls herself all kinds of confused. She identifies as gay. She's in her 20s, was raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment, was the victim of sexual abuse and never reported it. I was sexually abused by my stepsister from ages 7 to 11 and was in a sexually and emotionally abusive relationship with my boyfriend in high school. I struggle a lot with feeling like I can say no, uh, tying my self-worth to being wanted sexually, with being present during sex and did not have a positive sexual encounter where I wasn't just being used until I was 20. I sobbed after the first time. I had meaningful sex. I've been really struggling with my sexual orientation and think I am a lesbian, uh, but through some thought somersaults that I know are irrational, I convinced myself that I have been both conditioned to like women because of the abuse and been conditioned to not like men because of the abuse. Both of which I know aren't the case, and these thoughts are just my mind trying to delegitimize my feelings. She's been emotionally abused. I still feel messed up about it. I feel like he took a part of me that I haven't gotten back, even eight years later. I always assume that people, especially my partners, do not have my best interest in mind, and I feel scared to voice my opinions. When I'm around people yelling or if I get into a disagreement with anyone, I can almost feel myself shrink, and I feel so small. Any positive experiences with the abusers? I've had positive experiences with my stepsister. I do not blame her for what she did to me. She was also just a kid. She also must have been abused herself if she was doing those kinds of things to me. But we are now friends and hang out every once in a while to catch up. Darkest thoughts. I dream about murdering my abusive ex. I never actually would, but I so desperately want some kind of justice in my life, and I would love for him to feel even an ounce of hurt that he has made me feel. Darkest secrets. I used to cut myself and pour nail polish remover into the cuts. I still long for that feeling and wish I had the guts to do it again. I think I would if there was a place in my body that no one would find out, but my scars are pale now, so a new one would be obvious. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I watch almost exclusively double penetration and anal porn. I think that in these kinds of videos, the woman is often just treated like an object. Object. It makes me feel shitty after I watch them every single time. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I wish I could tell my mom that I was angry. I feel like I should have been protected as a child, but I wasn't. I brought up my childhood abuse to her once, and she made it about her and said, I don't know what you want me to do about it. I don't want anything from you, Mom, except for you to even acknowledge my pain. What, if anything, do you wish for? I honestly just want to be happy and feel like i am thriving for once have you shared these things with others i started dealing with these feelings in therapy starting in january 2017. i had just gone through a big breakup too and had a mental breakdown for almost all of 2017. it was the first time i had ever talked about the specifics of what happened and the first time i felt validated in my feelings I no longer go to therapy because I moved, but I know it would be helpful for me to go again. How do you feel after writing these things down? I feel all right. I haven't talked about these things in a while, and it feels good to get some of that feeling out. Thank you so much for that. It's amazing how many of us once we are able to even pinpoint where that trauma comes from in childhood, how difficult it is to get it acknowledged by the person that hurt us or even to acknowledge it ourselves, to give weight to it. This is from the love survey filled out by a person who calls himself, remember Clapton Solo in the live version of Crossroads? Question mark. I do. It's one of the best one of the best guitar solos ever. And I heard him in an interview say that he actually uh, had intended to start it on the downbeat, but he accidentally started it on the upbeat, which gave the entire solo a different feeling. But, I mean, what a great example of uh, a happy mistake. Uh They write, I love the mumbling, huffing sound my cat makes when he lies down on the floor in front of me, wanting me to pet him. I love breathing in the autumn air for the first time after months of summer heat. I love the episode with Andrea Abbott from 2015 and how vulnerable, open, and humorous she was. That is a great episode. And her last name is spelled A-B-B-A-T-E, which you would think is pronounced Abate, but it's pronounced Abbott. I love how you handled Andrea being a, this is Andrea Abbott, being a Scientologist. It was a perfect balance of being respectful and standing your ground at the same time. I love making my coffee with half a spoonful of cinnamon mixed in the coffee grounds. I love when I get to my kickboxing gym after a super depressed day and suddenly realize that I feel so happy and peaceful conversing with my friends and being present and using my body in a meaningful way. I love when my cat wakes me up every morning, even though it's way too early, to give me a kiss by licking my nose. That's so sweet. I love that my boyfriend and I can be really playful and silly together. I love putting on warm and fluffy socks when my feet are cold. That is such a good one. And just finding the thickest socks you have is such a good feeling. I love it when walking feels effortless, like I'm floating and aligned with the universe. I love feeling excited to go to my first support group meeting on Friday. Oh, that's so awesome. That's so awesome. I hope, I hope it went well. I love when I can be still and smell my boyfriend's hair and skin and just relish it without being plagued by worries. I love that I can feel such great admiration and love for other people and that I don't use the absurd standards I apply to myself when looking at others. And I love that my sister and I have overcome our past conflicts and that, for the first time in our lives, we can enjoy each other as equals and true friends. Oh, that is so that is so sweet. Those were great. Thank you for that. This is uh, from the Shame and Secret Survey filled out by a woman who calls herself I Am an imposter." Well, boy, did you find the right podcast. Uh, she identifies as bisexual. Uh, she's. In her 30s, was raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment, was the victim of sexual abuse and never reported it. Uh, I feel like I walked through life with writing on me that only predators can see. I was drugged and raped in my 20s by someone who had been my friend for years. I was raped again by my boss who knew I needed my job as I had small kids and no income apart from mine. I convinced myself we were having an affair to make it easier to live with mentally, but that man destroyed me. He left me with internal injuries, external injuries that healed, and memories that never seemed to fade. She's been emotionally abused. I wasn't wanted as a child and was sent away to live with relatives until it became embarrassing and they had to take me back. I was brought into my parents' home and used as a cleaner and babysitter for their other kids. I have a memory of having a cup of tea thrown across the room at me because I had used too much washing soap when I washed it. Things like this, plus verbal abuse, being told I would never be anything but a whore or a scrubber cleaner. They were everyday occurrences, right up until I was around 25. I had left home at 18, straight into an abusive relationship, but the verbal abuse still came from my family. They call me a liar now and say it never happened any positive experiences with the abusers. My mom treated me like her best friend, confiding in me and telling me I was her favorite child. Her behavior never bore this out, but I feel obliged to look after her and help her. I feel immense guilt when I don't do what she wants or needs to the point of making me sick. Wow. Darkest thoughts. My darkest thoughts center around revenge to everyone who has hurt me in some way. I have complicated and well-thought-out plans of disgusting ways to torture and destroy them in the most painful way possible. Darkest Secrets I had a sexual affair my husband doesn't know about. It was sex, but it was vile. It took BDSM to the most extreme, and I am ashamed to say I loved it and still crave it now. It went on for about six months, and I'm so conflicted Because I hate my rapist for hurting me, but my affair partner did worse with my consent and I enjoyed it. I'm so fucked up. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Extreme BDSM is how I usually describe it being degraded to the nth degree, being hurt, being used as nothing more than a fuckhole. Sharing this makes me feel like a disgusting human who deserves every ounce of abuse I've had in my life. You are not a disgusting human. Your brain reacted the way most of our brains reacted to our abuse. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I'd like to ask my parents to just tell the truth about my childhood, just to me, with no repercussions, just stop calling me a liar when we all know what you did. My childhood has left me feeling deserving of poor treatment and a total people pleaser. I think if they stopped calling me a liar and admitted what they did, it would help me somewhat. And boy, is that just the, the mirage in the desert that keeps us going to the, to the dry well and there's no fucking water just thinking oh if they could only see it if i could only hear these words coming out of them it would heal me but you know in in, in my experience you know it would be great if that happened but we can't wait around for that and even if that doesn't ha- happen that's i don't believe that's going to heal all of us and so we got to start finding a way to to heal that on our own what, if anything, do you wish for? I wish I could close my eyes and disappear, but for everyone to have their memory of me wiped. I know my husband and children would miss me, and that's the only thing that keeps me from suicide. Have you shared these things with others? My husband knows about the rape in my childhood. The rape has damaged our relationship somewhat. He can't look me in the same way, look at me in the same way, and it breaks my heart. It is. That is fucking heartbreaking. How do you feel after writing these things down? I'm sobbing. I feel worthless and wish I didn't exist. I'm life's piñata. People get great fun beating and stuffing from me. But I'm beaten and broken now and can't be fixed, so why keep beating me down? I I think you can heal. You know That's easy for me to say from miles away sitting in my fucking office doing this podcast, but we'll never know if, if we don't give it a shot. Sending you some love. And speaking of loves, this is from the Love Survey filled out by Beanie Boo. And they write, I love Pat Morita. I love Fado singing. Is it Fado or Fado? I, I believe that's a... Portuguese uh, form of song I love the house in the flood through the window from the train in the movie Spirited Away I love washi tape and origami paper I love the color purple the audiobook specifically I love when a stranger a relative stranger shows me involuntary recognition and then immediately dials it back so I don't notice that's such a specific one I love waving at the bus driver before stepping onto the bus. I love saying thank you to the universe as I touch my credit card to the machine. I love the moment before when you know something sweet is about to happen with someone you realize you've been making friends with for a while. Wow, those are awesome. Thank you for that. Those are so sweet. You sound like such a sweet person. This is from the Shame and Secret survey filled out by a trans woman uh, who (laughs) calls herself Jane, Jane, Jane fucking Myers. Uh, She identifies as gay. She's in her 20s, was raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment, never been sexually abused. Uh, She's not sure if she's been physically or emotionally abused. Darkest thoughts. I think about leaving home and moving to a completely isolated area, cutting off contact and crying my eyes out sleeping for three days, coming back home, and acting like nothing ever happened. Darkest Secrets. I used to do coke. The first time was with a prostitute after a lady broke up with me and I couldn't even get hard. Uh, And then parentheses before I came out as trans. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you, making love to another woman completely uninhibited and we're both in love with each other. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? To an ex-friend, I didn't end the friendship because of you lying to me. I ended it because I was lying to myself and you would never understand, ever. What, if anything, do you wish for? To achieve my dreams of being a female pro-wrestler who travels the world. Have you shared these things with others? Yes. People are supportive, and I'm about to start training to become a pro wrestler. That's so awesome. How do you feel after writing these things down? Better. Anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences. If you're scared to come out as trans or anything, find places like the Trevor Project, Trans Lifeline, someone you know, support, and trust, and believe in them to help you. You're not alone. Oh, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. Thank you for that. This is an awful moment filled out by a guy who calls himself rowing all the way to hell. And he writes, The pet of ours has probably seen me jerk off two hundred times in the last two months after the wife leaves the house. Now he just looks at me like, get a girlfriend, man. Oh. Oh the going the going to the computer for porn as the partner is backing out of the driveway i think a lot of people have experienced that in a relationship i'm so glad that i don't experience it in a relationship that i'm in now but you know if if you if you can't wait to get your pants off as your partner is backing out of the driveway it might be time to re-examine that relationship and how you're communicating, whether or not it's a good relationship for you or them. Yeah. And then finally, this is a happy moment filled out by a theater nerd. And they write, I remember one day in my senior year of high school when one of my friends had a birthday party on an island where her parents lived and worked. She invited the theater club, of which I was a part, and this group included people who were all in the same plays for years. We were a tight-knit group and spent lots of time together. We had a great day swimming and celebrating our friend's birthday, but what I remember most of all was us cramming ourselves onto an extra big hammock outside near the beach and watching the sunset. We were on top of each other in order to fit on the hammock with some people on the edge and others kind of piled on top. I remember the feeling of the fading sun and the feeling of the cool breeze on my skin. I remember hearing the breeze through the palm trees and the rustling noises that made. And I remember a strange mixture mixture of feeling both the boniness of people's limbs, the pinched feeling of being crushed in certain places, and the comfort of having soft skin against mine. I remember thinking, remember this moment because it's going to be one of the happiest ones you have. In hindsight, this thought feels dramatic, but I really did think that at the time at 17. I guess I had been struggling with depression and anxiety at that time in my life, so I really did think at the time that my happiness could not surpass that moment of quiet on the beach hammock with my friends. Life has gotten better since, but I remember feeling genuinely happy and thankful in that moment. I felt accepted by my friends and like they wanted me to be there. I felt understood, even though we didn't really talk about anything as we watched the sunset. Or perhaps I didn't remember what was said and just tuned out, as I was known to do and still do, but I'm trying to be better about that. But the proximity of my friends to me as we all watched the sun go down was enough for me to feel like I was a part of a community and part of a group I wanted to be a part of. I felt really taken care of and included in that moment like I belonged somewhere for the first time. Wow. Wow. It is so easy to, to picture that physical feeling that you described. It's such a great feeling. It's such a great feeling. There, there's nothing like feeling a part of something bigger than yourself and feeling included. Wow, thank you for that. And uh, anybody out there who's, who's struggling, there is, there is a community out there, our family. If it's not our, our family of origin, there, our family is out there. It's just a matter of finding them and letting them support us and, and growing and being there to support them. And uh, just never forget, you are not alone.